Well, good morning. Uh, great to be able to have this time together around the scriptures. Let me pray for us as we do it. Well, Heavenly Father, we're conscious as we come together this morning of uh, extraordinary disturbances around our world. Uh, the world just seems more fractured today than it ever has been. And we do pray, please, for healing. Uh, Hong Kong, uh, the States, other places of conflict, the virus. Uh, things don't seem to be getting much better, Lord. We ask, please, for your grace and mercy on healing. And we ask now, please, that um, you might rescue us, that, Lord Jesus, you might come soon, but that you might, in the meantime, deepen us, grow us to be more like Christ, uh, to know his mind, to know how to engage in the world, to be thoughtful, clear. We pray for maturity in all of this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the world is going through uh, terrible events at the moment, the, the virus, but also conflict. And uh, you can't be unaware of that. I trust you're not unaware of that. Um, and yet the world we're uh, in at the morning, uh, the passage that we're in at the morning, uh, this morning actually takes us to a very particular issue that almost has nothing to do with all of that that's happening out there. It's an issue in the ancient church uh, where there was a conflict over tongues and prophecy. And uh, there was great confusion around, well, actually, the Corinthians didn't think they were confused. Uh, they were just, as far as we can tell, very messed up about it. Uh, and Paul speaks directly to this issue. Now come chapter 14. And as we've noted most weeks, some of you, uh, again, this is awesome because uh, this is an issue I'm wrestling with personally because of context, background, whatever. Uh, but for many of us, uh, we're kind of perhaps wondering what's the relevance. And you might actually be tempted to say, let's brush through this fairly quickly and get on to something else. Can I urge you, please resist that temptation. This particular issue tongues versus prophecy may not be hot on your agenda but the thing that is relevant about it deeply relevant about it are, are the principles that Paul draws on to resolve this issue so you have a presenting issue they've gone crazy over the gift of tongues and that that may not be ours but Paul draws on a whole way of thinking, a whole bunch of principles and assumptions that help resolve that issue. Those undergirding principles are the ones that are relevant for us particularly. And I want to urge you this morning to wrestle with me on this passage, to dig beneath it in a sense, to get to that list of assumptions. I, I think I've got three that emerge as we go through this passage. Uh, they're embedded in his thinking, which means he writes what he writes and says what he says, uh, and so as we tease them out, I think you'll find them helpful. Let me give you the, just a taste by showing you the very first one. It emerges when you look at verse 20 of chapter 14. So if you grab your Bibles, turn to chapter, chapter 14, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians, and listen to these words. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children in regard to evil be infants, but in your thinking be adults. Be men is actually literally the translation. Now that's a verse that's not just about tongues or about prophecy. And it applies to those issues, and I'll show you that in a moment, but it applies far more broadly. It's a far more important principle that carries far further. I mean, at its most general terms, what it says is that Paul the Apostle is concerned that Christians be thinkers. It's a command. 
in your thinking be adults. Grow up in your thinking. Become a person who thinks deeply. Um, but in context, uh, it brings to the surface what I'm going to offer is an assumption that operates through this chapter. And I've suggested there are three of them. Let me give you the first one. I think the first assumption that Paul operates with is this. Not all thinking about spiritual matters is mature Christian thinking. I just think this is an assumption he brings, that it's possible to think about spiritual things in a childish way, in an immature way. And Paul uses quite stark language there in verse 20 to the Corinthians. It's quite extraordinary to think of him pastoring this group of people like this. Stop thinking like children. He says, it's possible to think about spiritual matters in an immature way. You see, here is a Christian community, a genuinely converted community, it seems quite clear. Paul speaks to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. He's very warm towards them. And they're beautifully passionate and they're very gifted. Chapter one of this book tells you how gifted they are. But there are a group of people who hadn't thought through the issues very deeply, says Paul. Their thinking is immature. Paul says it goes as far to say it's childish. The nature of immature thinking that was going on for them, I want to offer it's perhaps this. It's, it's the kind of thinking where they were responding simply with their instincts, with their gut, with their emotions that they were engaging and working out and resolving issues on the basis of what felt to them to be a good thing, what was instinctively the way they felt it should be. You see, the problem was that they'd received the gift of tongues and been captivated by it. And it's easy to see why at one level. Um, let me just give you a quick couple of comments about tongues. I'll give you a couple of comments this morning about tongues and prophecy, but let me just give you a couple of comments about tongues. What is tongues? Well, in the New Testament, uh, it's, there's at least two kinds, seemingly two kinds of tongues. One that you see in Acts chapter 2, where a group of apostles, the, or the, the disciples of Christ, the early Christians, were given a gift to speak in languages they'd never learnt, other human languages they'd never learnt. So tongues is described as speaking in other human languages. But in 1 Corinthians 14 it, it, and chapter 13, it seems like the gift of tongues here is perhaps not other human languages. It might be even a heavenly kind of language that no other human race speaks. But the point is that it's a tongue, a, a language that had not been taught, that simply comes by some supernatural engagement of the Holy Spirit to bring forth this speaking. Uh, it's described possibly chapter 13 as the tongues of angels, but that might just be hyperbole. It might just be saying, Paul saying, even if I speak in their tongues, uh, that might not describe the particular gift of tongues at Corinth. But nonetheless, it's a gift that is uh, very spectacular. And instinctively, you can see how it must feel supernatural. And instinctively, from the gut, you can kind of go, this is really special. That I have this ability that I've never been taught must mean I'm in touch with the Spirit of God. And so instinctively it feels all of that. And especially when you compare it to the other gifts, the gift of administration. Uh, I mean, that's part of the gift list, the gift of helps there in chapter 12. And you kind of left thinking, well, gift of administration, that doesn't feel particularly spectacular or exciting or 
supernatural. Now, maybe for some of you, it would be a supernatural gift to have that gift, but it doesn't feel very spectacular. It feels very ordinary. And so the Corinthians had set up a hierarchy of gifts based on how they felt about the gifts. The, the, the spectacular gift of tongues was at the top, uh, healing and so on, right up the top. But there are other gifts that seemed less spectacular, more ordinary. And they'd set up a hierarchy that suggested the more spectacular the gift, the more in touch with the Spirit of God, the more in the flow of the Spirit, the more open to the Spirit you were. And church for them was very important to express these gifts because it was evidence to them that they were genuinely moving in the Spirit. Paul says of that thinking, which he can understand. It feels very instinctively natural. But Paul says that thinking's wrong. In fact, he takes three chapters to explain this. Instinctive thinking, gut thinking, going with how it feels, is, he says, thinking like a child. It's the child who's captivated by colourful, spectacular, exciting. It's the adult, says Paul, who's able to discern that in the ordinary, there can be things that are quite spectacular, quite wonderful. The first, just before verse 20, the one I drew attention to, stop thinking like children. He says this, verse 19, in church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. That is a very heavy statement about the merits of tongues in church. He would rather speak only five intelligible words than 10,000 in a tongue. Now, he's not against the gift of tongues. He says a couple of times through this chapter that he's, it's a gift of God. It's, it's, not, it's not a wrong gift. Uh, you ought not forbid this gift at the end of the chapter. But he says very strongly he would rather in church speak five, just five intelligible words than 10,000 in a tongue. And it's a huge critique of their thinking. You see, tongues may not be an issue for you today. Maybe it is. Maybe it is a question you're wrestling with and uh, it's a good one to work through. It may not be, though, an issue for you, but, but that doesn't matter so much because this assumption that not all Christian thinking is mature Christian thinking is a principle that ought to shape all of Christian life. To, to, to learn to question your instincts is a deeply important value. Don't do theology by feel. Proverbs chapter 3. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your own instinctive, natural, gut understanding of things. But acknowledge the Lord. Learn to properly be suspicious of your own feelings. The world's wisdom that you have embraced learn to properly be suspicious of it. These are not good guides in spiritual matters. So the point here is that natural human thinking is not mature Christian thinking. And just notice actually here, it's taken Paul uh, three chapters to build the picture, build the undergirding issues to get to the point where he can now hit the issue directly. Because 
to grow in the kind of thinking that you need to properly analyze spiritual things, Paul says, doesn't just happen in a moment. You can't nail that with a 120 character Twitter. You can't nail it with a meme. You need, you, you, there are some issues that need a lot of thought, a lot of wrestling with, a lot of putting pieces all back into place so that you can actually see God's thoughts and the way God engages with things. You see, there's a taste. This passage is about a very particular issue, the issue of tongues versus prophecy. But what's revealed in Paul's handling of this issue are deeper assumptions. And there's the first, that not all thinking is mature Christian thinking and it takes time to develop uh, that kind of thinking where you, you're able to actually uh, push aside your, your natural reactions and instincts to come to true biblical mature adult thought. But let me take you to the second assumption that I think emerges through these chapters. And this will take some time to get there. So bear with me on this. But it does emerge when you look carefully at verse 5. So come back to chapter 14, verse 5, and listen to what Paul says. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Paul's happy that people speak in tongues. But I would rather you have prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so the church may be edified. But just sit with that. Did you notice what Paul said? I've been chatting to people about this for a long time over the years, and uh, it is interesting, this verse often kind of um, teases us. Did Paul really just say that there's one gift that's greater than another gift? And in fact, verse 5, he seems to suggest that it's not the gift, it's the one who does the gift, the, prophet, the, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Can he say that? It seems an astonishing thing to say. Um, now just note here again, uh, instinctively we find ourselves balking and saying, wow, is it Christian to say that there's a hierarchy of gifts? that some are greater than others and those who exercise them are greater. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit right instinctively. Back to the first point. Don't do your theology by instinct, by feel. Wrestle with the scriptures on this. Don't lean on your own understanding. You see, it is easy to imagine that Paul is against any kind of hierarchy of gifts because he has been arguing against the Corinthian hierarchy. The Corinthians had formed a hierarchy and at the top of the hierarchy were the spectacular, very obviously supernatural gifts as evidence that you're in touch with the spirit. Uh, and they put down the bottom, the gifts that were very ordinary, that didn't seem so spectacular. And Paul has been critiquing that hierarchy. Uh, that's been the point of the earlier chapters. And stick with me on that, on this. I, 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 I want to go back through what he's been saying to see if we can follow the line of thought that Paul's been operating with to get the assumptions to come out for us. So come back with me to chapter 12, verse 1. Back to chapter 12, verse 1. You remember he begins this section, we looked at it some weeks ago, now about gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. Or as was mentioned back then, it could be translated now about the spiritual, the spiritual ones, the spiritual, the ones who are really spiritual. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be uninformed because you have been 
you have been led astray before by mute idols, verse 2. So I want you to know some things. And effectively what he says through chapter 12 is, get rid of the hierarchy of gifts that you've been operating with. Because verse 4, verse four yes, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them all. One gift is not evidence that you are more in touch with the spirit than another gift. The hierarchy that you've got, Corinthians, is misguided. And in fact, verse 3, the chief evidence that you are in touch with the Spirit is that you can name Jesus as your Lord. That's a miracle. See, what Paul's saying is, that seems so ordinary and you've moved on to these spectacular things, but no, no, no. The fact that a person comes to know Jesus as their Lord, bow the knee to Him, hand over the reins of their life to Him, that is a spectacular miracle of the Spirit of God. You see, he is undermining their hierarchy, but he's not against any hierarchy. Look at verse 28 of chapter 12. God has placed in the church first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healings, of helps, guidance, different kinds of tongues. Now, at some level, he acknowledges, he wants to affirm that there is a hierarchy of a sort that there are at least three gifts that stand as at the head of the gifts of the Spirit. And then he says this very important statement, verse 31, eagerly desire the greater gifts. There are greater gifts, just not the kind of great level of greatness that you Corinthians have set up. But there is a hierarchy of gifts. This is Paul's thinking. And the hierarchy is just not like anything you've formed. You, you formed it on the basis of what feels the greater. But Paul is wanting to rebuild the whole frame of reference that they use to work out what's great, what's less. It's not based on spectacular, exciting, amazing, astonishing, miraculous. It's based on a very different criteria indeed. And so chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a deeply important chapter. Wonderful last week to reflect on it together. But it isn't just a random thought on the topic of love that you can pull out and do in a wedding or some other context. It's not just a chapter on love in its own right. It's actually integral to his whole movement of thought to get to a discussion about tongues and prophecy. You see, there are some gifts that are greater than others, but in order to properly appreciate which ones really are the greater ones and which ones are the lesser ones, you need to understand chapter 13, the more excellent way. Now, what is the more excellent way? Love. That's the point of chapter 13. And let's call it assumption two. The first assumption is that not all thinking is mature Christian thinking. The second assumption is that there's a deeper value that runs through all of Christian thought. It's the primacy of love. That is the most excellent way. And when you have that as the frame of reference, it helps you reframe the way you think about gifts. You see, chapter 13, love is the big deal. 
That's why the gifts were actually given. I mean, he says this back in chapter 12, verse 7. He says the gifts were given for the common good. They weren't given for your own personal use. They weren't given for your own self-satisfaction. They weren't given for your own sense of self-fulfillment. They weren't given that you might be authentically who you are. They, They weren't given for you. They were given for the common good because love is the deepest category. And more than this, the gifts were only temporary. They will stop when Christ returns. They're not the big, gifts themselves aren't even the big deal. Love's the big deal. The fruits of the Spirit are the big deals. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, goodness and so on. And so now you come to chapter 14 and look at how it begins, verse 1. Follow the way of love, Corinthians. Stop measuring things on the hierarchy of what feels most exciting, therefore the greatest. Rather, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, but most especially prophecy. See, now he's actually able to give you the way to work out what the greater gifts are, what are the gifts you really should pursue, when you've got the pieces in place and the importance of love. And so his further assumption here is that love drives, but love enables you therefore to determine which gift is greater than the other gift on the basis of a third assumption. Let me give you the first assumption. Not all thinking is mature Christian thinking. You need to work hard to Put aside your own instincts, your own feelings, your own um, gut, uh, not lean on your own understanding, but actually learn to sit at the feet of God in his word to understand his way of seeing the world. Uh, Christian maturity, learning to be an adult in your thinking is the first assumption the Apostle Paul brings. The second one is that love is the great thing. That which enables me to serve others best, help the needs of others most, is what love is about. That's the great thing. And so he then promotes prophecy over tongues. But beneath that little assessment is another assumption. Let me give you the third assumption. Why is prophecy greater than tongues? Well, because it best serves other people, whereas tongues only edifies yourself. He says that uh, You can see that through verse 4. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. But what is it about prophecy that means it is the most edifying to the church rather than tongues? Well, here's an assumption that's deeply embedded in Paul's thinking. Let's see if we can bring it to the surface. It has everything to do with what the gift of prophecy is about. So let me make some comments about what prophecy is. Tongues, I've already mentioned, is speaking in other languages that you haven't ever learnt before, that people you're talking to may never have heard before. Let me give you a comment about prophecy. What is prophecy? Well, there's some care needed here because prophecy is never defined in the Bible. You just see it happening. Prophecy is a broad category of speech. You have in the Old Testament prophets who 
in essence, brought the word of God to God's people and to the world. They thus says the Lord, and they spoke to the people. Some of it was about telling the future, what God would do in the future. But most of it was not future telling, but forth telling is the little phrase that's used. Most of it was actually calling people back to being faithful to God as he revealed himself in the scriptures. Most of it was telling people to repent and trust the God who's revealed himself in his word. Most of it was simply telling forth who God is and how we ought to respond appropriately to him. Now, in the Old Testament, prophecy was a big deal. You obeyed the word of the prophets. They were leaders. But New Testament prophecies are a different thing. Has the same features, but without the same authority. You can see in the end of chapter 14 that uh, if a prophecy is given, um, then you ought to test the prophets. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak. The others should weigh carefully what's said. You would never do that with an Old Testament prophet. He speaks, thus says the Lord, and you submit. But a New Testament prophet, well, they're not reliably authoritative. We need to test them and assess. So we've used the distinction between capital P, Old Testament prophet, little p, New Testament prophet. The, the New Testament category of Old Testament prophet is the apostle, the one who speaks the words of God with authority. And you can see it at the end of chapter 14, Paul lays down this word, verse 37, if anyone speaks they're a prophet or otherwise gift, let them acknowledge what I am writing to you because Paul's words, the Old Testament prophet. New Testament prophets are less authoritative and less reliable. You can't be sure that they've actually got the word revealed correct. But the other thing to note with New Testament prophecy is that it does come by revelation, but revelation doesn't always mean spontaneous. We think naturally, instinctively, that if a prophet receives a word by revelation, then it's kind of popped into their mind and it's a spontaneous moment and wow, God's giving me this thing I could never have thought of. But that's not how the language of revelation works in the New Testament. So Matthew chapter 16 is one of the easiest examples of this where Peter the apostle is asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. Now, how has Peter come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, he's been with him for a couple of years. He's been reflecting on all that Jesus has done and he's worked out that he is the Messiah. But Jesus goes on and says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. So revelation from God can come with reflection, with thought. It doesn't need to be spontaneous or momentary. You may not even know you've had a revelation to have had a revelation. Another interesting example of the man Caiaphas uh, in John's gospel. Um, Caiaphas was the high priest and he said these words that it's good for one man to die for the nation instead of the nation. And John the apostle says that Caiaphas, a Jewish, not a Christian, prophesied. Now Caiaphas didn't, wasn't aware of him prophesying, he was just speaking what he thought was best. But there's a revelation of God given to someone to prophesy. Prophecy is a very broad category. It can include that spontaneous revelation that could not be had anywhere. 
but that needs to be tested. It's not authoritative, it's not necessarily reliable. The word of the prophets needs to be assessed by the leadership, the eldership of a church. But a lot of prophecy comes upon reflection, which has meant many Christians down through the centuries, I think correctly have judged that preaching can be prophecy. There is a teaching instruction that just explains a text, but then when that is properly applied with discernment and applied into the lives of God's people in a call of God's people back to his word, that can now move in a more prophetic vein. And you see why this might be so, because Paul describes the outcome of prophecy there in verse 3 of chapter 14. He says, The prophet is one who prophesies to the people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. That's not a description of future telling. That's a description of foretelling, of bringing God's word to bear to God's people for their strengthening, their encouragement, their edification, their comfort. New Testament prophecy is a broad category uh, that includes reflective, thoughtful proclamations, speaking, individuals who have thoughtfully reflected on the word of God and brought it to bear in friends' lives and others without necessarily claiming they've had some spontaneous, dramatic revelation. It's just seeking to apply that that can be prophetic and so can much preaching. The point here is take care Don't do your theology about prophecy based on how you feel that it must be. It must be exciting, it must be dramatic, it may not be. Work from the scriptures out. Well, Paul compares tongues and prophecy in chapter 14. And you can see now why he would say prophecy is the greater one and not tongues. Because love is the principle that shapes everything. The gifts were given for the sake of loving others. What is the gift that brings the greatest help to people? The gift that brings the word of God to bear in a way that's understandable and intelligible. That's exactly Paul's argument through these verses. Look at verse 2. Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. In fact, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by their spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strength and encouragement and comfort. That's an act of loving people, whereas tongues is an act of edifying yourself. Therefore, the gift that most helps others is the gift that's greater between these two gifts. The one who prophesies, verse 5, is greater than the one who speaks in tongues because it's an act of love to serve and give. This is why in chapter 12, verse 28, Paul gives an order to the gifts there, first of all apostles, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then the other gifts. Because these first three gifts are the gifts that deliver the word of God to God's people. And the assumption operating here is that God's people desperately need God's word. The key to our growth as Christians is God's word. The key to being brought to faith is the gospel word. The key to be deepened in our walk with Christ is God's word. 
the key to no longer being infants like children, but mature in our thinking is God's word. The key to having Christ's mind formed in us is leaning not on your own understanding, but looking to God in his word. And so the greater gift is the one that helps people become more like Christ. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you see, here's a series of assumptions that Paul has. The first one is that not all thinking is mature Christian thinking. You need to be discerning. You need to deepen in your thinking. You need to go to the word of God to deepen. And when you do that, you'll see that the great deepest principle of life under Christ is love. And so what matters in the gifts is that they are exercised in a way that best loves and serves others. Third assumption, the greatest way to love and serve a person is to bring the mind of Christ to them, grow them in the word of God. And so prophecy is the greater gift. Now, Paul drives this point home with a quote in verse 21 from an Old Testament prophet. And it's probably the hardest part of this chapter. And so uh, I was tempted just to leave it out and kind of let you wrestle with it. But I thought, let me give you some thoughts on it because it is important because Paul, Paul uses this verse to actually drive home his point about how much prophecy is far more important than tongue speaking. So let me do this with you. Have a look at chapter 14, verse 21. He quotes there from Isaiah 28. With the tongues, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He draws a conclusion from it in verse 22. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now, what does he mean? Let me take you back to Isaiah 28 to find out. Come with me. Isaiah 28, uh, we looked at this book last year sometime. Uh, it was great to spend our time in that part of the Bible. But Isaiah 28 is in the context of judgment upon Israel. They have failed to live in trusting obedience to their God. And so God has now, after great patience and great patience, brought judgment upon them. And the particular problem is there in their leadership. Chapter 20, ver 28, verse 7, he refers to priests and prophets who stagger with drunkenness, they're befuddled. And they, uh, a critical verse 9 of Isaiah's ministry of teaching them the word. And, and look at verse 9. Who is he trying to teach, they say? To whom is he explaining? Who is Isaiah explaining his message to, they're saying to each other? To children weaned from milk? Those just taken from their mother's breast? See, that they're, they're, they're horrified that Isaiah's words are so simple and so basic. And who does he think we are? Just children? It's beneath them. And so they dismiss Isaiah's prophetic ministry. Verse 11, God then says, Very well then. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. Verse 13, So that the word of God will become to them, Babel is what the attempt of the translators is to do with these verses. The word of God will become to them babble, unintelligible, so that they will fall backwards, be injured and snared and captured. What you have here is 
an Old Testament context where God comes to judge his people. And the way he does it is to not bring an intelligible word, but an unintelligible babble from foreigners, foreigners speaking a language they don't know, so that they're befuddled, they're confused, they, they can't work out what's being said. Because when God wants to bring judgment, he causes the word to be confused. When God wants to treat a person as an unbeliever, as someone who's not under his favour, someone who's not being drawn by him into a closer walk with himself, he brings a word to them that's riddles. You get this in Mark chapter 4 with Jesus' ministry. The reason he teaches in parables is so that people will just hear them as riddles and be hardened. The reason he doesn't speak a clear word is because God is bringing judgment. And so Paul takes this deep theological truth from the book of Isaiah and says to the Corinthians, stop thinking like children, in your thinking be adults, listen to the way God engaged with his Old Testament people in the past. When he wanted to judge them, treat them as unbelievers, he brought a word that was unclear. So therefore, verse 22, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. That is, tongues are a way God treats people that he's not wanting to bring to mature, mature belief and faith. Whereas prophecy is a thing God brings to a people that he wants to bring to belief and faith. Prophecy is a sign for those that he wants to draw closer because it's a clear word that brings faith in that word and obedience to that word. Stop thinking like children, Paul says to the Corinthians. He's horrified. He's horrified at the immaturity of the Corinthians who have measured the merit of gifts by human wisdom, by their feelings, by their instincts, which is so wrong. And they've ended up creating a church experience that was the kind of experience God brings to people he's judging. An experience where there's no clear declaration of God's word, where there's no bringing of the scriptures to bear. There's no clarity where the Bible slowly gets shut, where people no longer know it where what they have is exciting phenomena, where they judge the spiritual evidence of a church by the basis of the tingles up and down their spine. And Paul says, stop thinking like children. Look beyond the superficials. If you get clarity from the word of God, verse 24, people will have conviction of sin, they will grow in insight and understanding, then there will be repentance and conversion and growth. Well, how do we apply all of this to us? First, can I urge you to learn to be suspicious of your own feelings in the spiritual realm? Your feelings and your instincts and your gut is not a very good way to do to work out what God is like and how God relates and how church should be. These are not good ways to actually work out the best process to live the Christian life. Don't lean on your own understanding. Work at digging into God's word, growing in your thinking, becoming mature adults in our thinking. God wants us to be thinking Christians. But let, but let me say secondly and lastly, be encouraged. I find this hugely encouraging. Let me tell you why. 
Because the evidence of the Spirit is not measured by spectacular. It's not measured by unusual and irrational and exciting. When it is, you're under a great deal of pressure to get the excitement happening. You measure the Spirit's presence in a person and in a group of people by the presence of the Word of God, clearly taught and heard, by faith in that Word, as to Christ himself. You see the evidence of the Spirit of God in a community of people who, who want to come under the Lordship of Christ, who want to live holy, godly lives, because the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The evidence of a work of the Spirit in a group is submitting to the will of God in his word, trusting that word, and loving one another no longer living for themselves, but seeking to bring whatever gift God has given them to bear for the sake of the good of others, to not live for self-authentication, to not live for self-fulfillment and self-gratisfaction, to be profoundly different to the world around us. I'll tell you why all of that's encouraging. Because the ordinary things are profoundly spectacular. They're remarkably wonderful. They are the truly great things. To be gathered as God's people in a place without smoke machines and the spectacular excitings, you don't need all of that. What you need is the Word of God, humbly trusted and abide, which gives rise to the fruit of love amongst us, where we seek to serve each other and edify each other and bring a Word of God to each other that we might strengthen each other in the things of Christ, that looks from the outside to be very ordinary, but it is astonishingly wonderful and very encouraging to be part of. And pray, God, we pursue it together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us appreciate the ordinary things for what they are, truly spectacular things. Help us appreciate that... Uh, that that your word is brought to bear, that we trust that word, heed that word, lean not our own understanding, but deepen and grow in our thinking from your word. Please help us appreciate how wonderful that is, such that therefore we evidence together a submission to the will of Christ as our Lord, and we give expression to his lordship by seeking to love and serve one another. Please let that be true of our church. And please let it be the case that across our country there is a great revival of interest in these things. That you might please grow your church, bring the word of God back to bear in your church, that people might be transformed and changed into the image of Christ, we pray. Amen.